The book of Exodus, chapter 15. This is the aftermath of Israel leaving Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. The Egyptians are no longer a problem, never will be again. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and army he has hurled into the sea. The finest of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters gushed over them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow those who rise against you. You unleash your blazing fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your breath, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood straight like a wall. In the heart of the sea, the deep waters became hard. The enemy boasted, I will chase them and catch up with them. I will plunder them and consume them. I will flash my sword. My powerful hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord, glorious in holiness, awesome in splendor, performing great wonders? You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. With your unfailing love, you led your people you have redeemed. In your might, you guide them to your sacred home. The peoples hear and tremble. Anguish grips those who live in Philistia. The leaders of Edom are terrified. The nobles of Moab tremble. All who live in Canaan melt away. Terror and dread fall upon them. The power of your arm makes them lifeless as stone. Until your people pass by, O Lord, until your people who you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, reserved for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, that your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Then I want to jump down to verse 20. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine and led all the women as they played their tambourines and danced. And Miriam sang this song, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. This is Israel's first psalm. There will be a whole lot more later on, but this is the first one. And it's the first time that they, they worshipped as Israel, the people of God. Uh, pardon me, the first time they worshipped in song. It will be a long time before music becomes a regular part of Israel's worship. It won't be until the time of David. Um, and I, I want to talk about this song a little bit, but first I'm going to uh, quickly run through what follows this song and then come back to it. Israel has another song that they start singing, um, and it's the chorus of complaint. Uh, yeah. 
Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They, Shur. they traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, or Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Uh, they arrive at their first desert oasis, but the water there is undrinkable. It is bitter. Well, this is something that typically occurs when you're traveling. As you know, things don't always go smoothly. Um, you get to the tip, uh, ticket counter, you forgot your passport. Uh, you um, start off on your way to Arizona and you get a flat tire, or you have to drive through the desert. Uh, something is going to make it bitter at some moment. And those of us who, tra who are travelers know that. Um, people who had lived sedentary lives, that is, as slaves, for a long time, they don't know about travel. They don't know to expect bitter things to come up on the way. So they go straight to complaint. They grumble. They, they murmur. The Hebrew word here uh, suggests frustration and disappointment settling inside and then leaking out verbally. You know, so it can just be walking around, well, I can't believe he did that to me. What was he thinking? It's like just that constant verbalization of this unhappiness inside. And I'm sure that they learned to complain while they were slaves. Uh, you know, that's like, you know, a slave's favorite form of entertainment. Um, what horrible things can you say about your master? Israel was an infant nation. They had been dependent on their masters. Uh, that's who they'd go to if they didn't have enough food or water or shelter. And it did not occur to them yet that they could fend for themselves. I don't think they even thought of it. The wilderness also was more than a place. It was, also, it was a mental state. It represented chaos and uncertainty. Uh, the wilderness was unpredictable and uh, full of unknown dangers. And so when they began to experience wilderness, you know, some Christians today will say, yeah, I'm going through a wilderness experience. And you just know what they mean. Their spirit is dry it's been a long time since they felt spiritually refreshed or renewed. They're wondering where God is and maybe prone to complain a little bit, too. Uh, but um, God did not scold them for complaining. Uh, not this time. Uh, he did not fault them for it. Instead, he used this incident to instruct them in verses uh, 25 and 26. I'm going to teach you something now. And that is, if you'll trust me, I'll take care of you. Uh, I have taken care of you. Just, you know, trust me, stay with me, do as I say. And, and none of the plagues that hit Egypt are going to hit you. Their next stop was a true oasis in verse 27. They came to Elim, and at Elim there were uh, five springs of water and 70 palm trees. And uh, what's the significance of that? I'm, I'm sorry, there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. The significance 
may just be these are generalized numbers, or it could be each tribe had their own spring and five palm trees, perhaps date palms. So they've got something now uh, each for themselves, and uh, they don't have to complain this time. But before long, they are griping again. Uh, chapter 16, verse 3, If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into this wilderness to starve us to death. It's, it's you know, perhaps slight exaggeration when uh, our children or grandchildren say, I'm starving to death. When are we going to eat? Um, here, you know, starvation looked like a, a real potential for them. And so they say, oh, you know, if only we were back in Egypt, we could at least die with full stomachs. <laughs> now, when forming an opinion about work, about a person, about a system. The easiest thing in the world is to criticize. Criticism it is so easy, partly because everything is flawed somehow. And even if you can't find the flaw, you can invent one. So that you can be criticizing everything all the time. You can enter a restaurant and immediately find things to complain about. You can um, go to the gym and find things to complain about. You can wake up in the morning and find things to complain about. It's, it's so easy. It's not a skill we want to develop. Um, it locks us into negativity, and it tends to spoil your life. You don't realize it, but anything that could bring you happiness or joy you ruin it by finding the weakness of it, the flaw in it. There is a symmetry in their complaint. Uh, they express it as a contrast between Egypt and the wilderness. In Egypt, we have food. Here in the desert, we'll starve. Again, God does not fault them for their grumbling. Uh, for now, I think he wants them calling upon him. Yeah, this is how it works. You run into a problem, you come to me. They aren't praying exactly, uh, certainly not praying the best possible prayers. Uh, oh, would that we had died in Egypt. You know, that's, that's not the best prayer you can pray. Uh, would that I had died while still a sinner. Um, it's a snide statement, if only Yahweh had killed us. But God is patient with them. He'll accept this for now. Uh, our earliest prayers were not our best prayers. Oh, good grief. I know people after 20 years, 50 years of being in Christ, they still don't pray decent prayers. Um, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing your prayers or prayers in general. I'm just saying that um, they're still praying that God would let them win the lottery. I'm like seriously you know, praying for that. And, uh, you know, I would like to convince God I would make the best philanthropist. <laughs> you know, I just uh, know all these things where I could uh, apply, uh, you know, capitalization and it would make a difference in the world. But 
he doesn't really, you know, care to hear me pray that prayer. Um, but God's patient with him. Moses, on the other hand, expresses here his irritation with them. What have we done that you should complain about us? He says to them. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. So just, you know, just two complaints he's already done with them. Whereas God is taking it slow with them, they're still learning. So first it was water, now it's food. Okay? Um, and then God does something special. Uh, I think it's special in chapter 16, verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, announce to this entire community of Israel, present yourselves before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. And as Aaron spoke to the whole community of Israel, they looked out toward the wilderness. They could see the awesome glory of the Lord in the cloud. And, and glory in this instance is some kind of radiance, but it is so unnatural or supernatural, you could not mistake it for anything else than what it was. And they had to prepare themselves for this. Tell them to prepare themselves because God's going to reveal his glory. So before God set food on the table, he revealed his glory to them. Jesus did this for three of his disciples. He took them up onto a mountain and he revealed his glory. He did not get glory. That glory was already in him, but he revealed his glory. And later John could say, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. It is a self-manifestation. They were permitted to see who God was, not merely deduce who he was through his actions in the world, but actually see what is called a theophany um, in which God somehow manifests his presence to people without actually standing in front of them so that they can see him as he is in his fullness because that would kill them. And so he, he chooses a form in the cloud, the thunderstorm on top of Mount Sinai. Often the angel of Yahweh is a, th- a theophany of God. And in the, these various ways, he reveals himself directly and personally. That evening, quail flew into the camp and they had meat. And the next morning, the area around the camp was wet with dew. When the dew evaporated, a flaky substance as fine as frost blanketed the ground. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw it. What is it? They asked each other. It was breakfast. It was a a substance that they could grind and use as flour to make bread. They never did figure out what it was, and that's why they named it manna, which means, what is it? Um, what's it? Everyone had just enough. Says Some collected a lot, some collected a little. 
But those who collected a lot did not have too much. Those who collected a little had just enough. And they had just enough for each day. Uh, they weren't supposed to hoard it or collect it for the next day. If, it, if they did, it would breed worms and smell bad. Uh, but some people made the experiment, and uh, that upset God. Uh, only on the sixth day, there was enough manna to collect for two days, and it held over to the next day without spoiling because God was already training them to observe the, the Sabbath. And we're going to have a lot to say about the Sabbath later on because it's emphasized a lot in Exodus. In fact, in some places, all of a sudden the Sabbath appears where it doesn't really make sense. It's not in the context. But God doesn't want them to forget. And he doesn't want us to forget that we have our own personal Sabbath every moment that we spend silent in his presence. That's a way of returning to his rest that is his gift to us. When we feel like, you know, I haven't done enough to earn my, uh, my place with God. I haven't done enough to, to deserve his grace. It's time to go back to the Sabbath where you don't work, where you just sit and receive, and he fills. Now, I don't think that we're in a position to make moral judgments regarding Israel and their complaining. I mean, even when they're complaining, it gets a whole lot worse. I don't think we're in a position to make moral judgments. Uh, if God says, okay, now you've gone over the line, now this is wrong, we can accept God's statement about it. But having enough food and water is not a trivial issue. Around the world today, there are mothers watching their children starve for lack of food or suffer dysentery and perhaps die of that without proper medication because of bad water. So, you know, to say, well, you know, they're complaining all the time. Hey, they're not going to survive without it. Eating and drinking are right there up at the top of the list of human needs just below breathing. And if you can breathe, the next thing you need is water. And if you have breath and water, the next thing you need is food. Now, those are basics for physical survival. Israel is just beginning to learn that God will meet those basic needs for survival. And, and I wonder, uh, you know, if you think, wow, you know, I'm, uh, I'm kind of behind on my bills and not really sure how I'm going to make it up this month. Just ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? Are you going to be without food and water? Not likely. I, 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 I literally put myself on the witness stand uh, one morning this past week. Uh, after I read in the scriptures, I, I started off with this you know, theological question. I'm pestering God with it. And, and suddenly I caught myself and I realized... I'm not being very open-minded right now. And so I put myself on the witness stand, and the attorney is asking me questions like, has God ever let you down? No. Have you ever had to miss a meal because you did not have enough money? No. I mean, I've missed meals for other reasons, 
and I haven't had enough money for meals, but I've been fed anyway. So, no, and it just went on. I don't think we realize how much we have, how, how full our lives actually are. And I've come to realize that my portfolio includes friendships and that there's a wealth there. Case in point, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but they're both here this morning. Um, I'm not such a good friend. Just, uh, you know, just say it. I don't keep in touch. Sometimes I don't return phone calls. Um, I don't send birthday cards. Okay? But if I'm needed, I'm there. I'm, I'm one that my friends can count on. This last week, a friend needed me and called. And between conversations with him, I sat with another friend who gave me very wise insight. Insight I wouldn't have on my own. And the insight that he gave me, I was deeply grateful to receive. And from it, and using it, I was able to give some insight and direction to my other friend in need. And he was deeply grateful. So you know who you are, and I love you and appreciate you. Um, but what you're in my portfolio of what makes me wealthy. I hope that, that you have that kind of wealth also. Okay, now we kind of have an outline of, of chapter 15 and chapter 16. I want to go back to the poem. I saved it for last because poetry for me is like dessert. You know, so I'm saving this for last. Poetry explores, it experiments, you know, thought ideas. It contemplates, it imagines, um, it celebrates. It does all kinds of wonderful things for us. It sometimes surprises us in ways that wake us up. More than anything, poetry invites us into the experience of. Poetry has its own rules. Words do not feel bound to their dictionary definitions. In poetry, a word will say, well, I don't have to mean that. And so you can have a mountain range that grieves. You can have trees in a forest clapping their hands for joy. And if you're an engineer in a technical industry, you're saying, trees don't clap their hands. They don't have joy. Oh, but you're not a poet. And the poet can hear the trees clapping their hands for joy. You can imagine the permeation of God's goodness to the whole earth in such a way that non-sentient living things can respond joyfully and with gratitude. It's just a way of talking that opens up our hearts a little bit more. The sky can weep, um, and so on. Because poetry begins in the soul, it does pass through the intellect, which does some embellishing when, when it gets to the point, but because poetry begins in the soul, it provides a perfect language for prayer and praise. And so much of the prayer and praise of Scripture is poetry, is found in the Psalms. And you can write 
your prayer poem about anything. You can complain in it. You can express doubt. You can ask, how long, O Lord, will you reject us forever? Because you feel that way. You can even say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And feel that he really has. And you can talk to him about it. It's the beauty of it is that you can talk to God about anything, and he wants us to. Yesterday, I was uh, walking Kona, and uh, we went down by Salt Creek. That was part of our path. And I heard singing. And um, as I approached the grassy park area at Salt Creek, I saw a group of Koreans, and they were singing a hymn in Korean, revive us again. And I began to mouth the words in English to myself as I walked past it. It just, I don't know, there's something delightful about it. Unashamed, they were singing their hymn in this very public place with people flying kites and chasing their children and walking dogs. And it was their song of of prayer and, and request. I smiled as I walked past because it was, it was joyful. And so the psalm begins, I will sing to the Lord. And, and just note for now that it begins with a first person singular. I, my, me. The individual worshiper has a song because of what God has done. This is how a person owns God, by, by personalizing worship and his generous grace. God had given them a, a song, and it had become their song. Robert Alter says, pardon me, God had given them a song, but God himself had become their song. The Lord is my strength and my song. Robert Alter says, God, who is the source of the speaker's power, is for that very reason the theme of his song. Because of who God is, he becomes my song. In verses 2 through 4, the song goes like this. It worships God for who he is and what he has done. And this is folded into the rhythm of the song. So we're, we're seeing this cause and effect. God is this, and he has done that. God is this, and he does this and that. God is, and he will do this. And that's kind of how the the song unfolds. There are other features of this song, I think, that are worth noting. Okay, I'm not one of those professors who, you know, tears a poem apart until it dies, until, you know, it's like, it's like uh, the, the specimen that we dissect and kill it in the process. Um, that's, that, I'm not about that. But I think that if there's certain things that we notice, we can enjoy more of what's here. The poem uses expressions that are graphic and dramatic. So if it sounds like the poet goes over the top, he does. And he does it to make a point. So, so enjoy how graphic it is. It's like, you know, this isn't just prose on paper. This is comic book where you see pictures. Um, 
In fact, he, he uses the palette of our imagination to paint these vivid scenes. In verse 14, he begins to project into the future where they're going to face new challenges, challenges with their enemies. And the first thing he does is he describes their, ver- their visceral experience that, um, that they're gripped with anguish. We can, we can feel that before we find out why. And then we find out why. They're terrified. They've heard what Yahweh, this mighty God of Israel, has done for them and against the Egyptians. And so the Philistines and the Hittites and, and the others that now live in the land, they're terrified at what they hear. But we, we feel it first before we know what's causing it. The poem uses metaphors, um, metaphors that create feelings to match the events. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Um, good metaphor. Um, or simile, I guess, because it uses like or has. Do you know the difference between metaphor and simile? No? Good, okay. <laughs> they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Blazing fury consumes them like straw. Waters stand up like a wall. Okay, so word pictures, um, again, to make the experience more palpable. The poem uses poetic license. In verse 9, it puts words in the mouth of their enemy. Um, We don't know what the Egyptians were saying as they were riding their chariots toward the Red Sea in pursuit of Israel. But here they imagine what they were saying. And so we can hear the, the, the voice of the Egyptians. And it, it helps to characterize the scene from the Israelites' point of view. The poem uses repetition. Um, in, in verse 16, uh, they watched until the people passed over. Until the people the Lord purchased, passed over. And notice the addition in the second line. It's a repetition, but with the addition. And the addition explains why these are God's people. It's because he bought them. He went to the store in Egypt, and he paid for them. He bought them, and now they're his. but, But the addition fills out our understanding. Sometimes repetition is used to intensify the the feeling of the first line. Uh, Sometimes it's used as a contrast, and sometimes it's another way of saying the same thing, but with just enough change in the nuance that you hear it in a different voice. The poem suggests theological themes, the theme of redemption, which this is huge in being attached to the Exodus. And of course, it's huge in regard to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Not only redeemed, but as we said, purchased. God's purchased them. And the poem simply states these great concepts without trying to develop them. And I think that's very important to realize about the the book of Psalms is we, we, okay, if I say we, I'm talking about theologians. I'm not really one of them, but they tell us you don't derive doctrine from the Psalms. That's because the Psalms give us the voice of humans in prayer. 
And they're inspired in the sense that these were real prayers that came from real human hearts, and this is what people really say. It's, it's definitely true that way. But some of their thoughts are not true. The thought that when they die, it's all over, that no one who, who dies ever praises God again. Don't make a doctrine out of that. See what I'm saying? So, um, so they don't try to develop these themes, but they're aware of them. And they can see them. To, to see redemption in the Exodus this early, that's profound. But they don't try to turn that then into a doctrine. They just throw it out there and leave it for us to contemplate. What does this mean? What does this mean in context? What does it mean to me? The poem contains other literary devices, but unfortunately we would have to be able to read Hebrew to appreciate them. The, um, the alliteration that's here, the pun on words, and so on. Or even if we heard it, we'd, we'd recognize some words that sound similar and maybe have the same number of syllables. And it's hard to reproduce in English. The song ends with a crescendo that um, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Everett Fox said, this last verse goes far beyond the celebration of a single military event. And when they come to this last line, they've already talked about God's dwelling on his holy mountain, even though they don't know yet it's going to be Jerusalem. But, but in anticipation of the fullness of God's will for them, they're already able to sing about it. And so, uh, and we've also covered the other nations that are afraid of them, uh, afraid of their God anyway. And we've seen that. Um, Everett Fox is right. This goes far beyond just this moment at the, sea, at the uh, Red Sea. That's the beginning. And all this follows as a result. Although the song ends with this, this, cele- uh, this, this high note, the celebration doesn't end because then we have Miriam and women following her and they all have tambourines, which I think would be terrible. Uh, I mean, personally, uh, you know, the only thing that would be worse is if they all had accordions. Um, but, uh, sorry. Um, uh, anyway, the, uh, they come out singing and dancing. And Moses doesn't say, no, 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 none of that. He, he wasn't a Baptist. Um, <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't have to say no, no dancing. Um, I'm going to preface my next remark with this. I should not say this. <laughs> I have a friend who gave a talk, and, uh, and it was a, a, a freeing talk for evangelicals who had felt all bound up uh, in the relationship with God. It was all work and no fun. And he gave this talk, and afterwards this woman came up to him, and she said, I'm a Baptist. And you know why us Baptists are discouraged from making love standing up? They're afraid we'll start dancing. (laughs) Okay, so I told you I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, but I did. If I do it, I get a spanking. I do it. We have not. What are you putting that on Facebook? No. Okay. Don't don't quote me if you do. Um, 
<laughs> it wasn't me. It was, it was a friend of mine. Well, the 150 people who watched that, okay. Yeah, see, I am unappropriate at times. I'll make my confession later. We haven't seen Miriam since she talked to Pharaoh's daughter. And that was by a body of water also, wasn't it? Now she reappears and she's a prophet. There's a lot we could say about that, huh? Centuries later, after this event, after the song, Paul writes about these things, and he says that these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. Here's what I hope we learn from their example today. The poem begins, like I said, with the first person singular, but it ends with they. It begins as an individual and ends as a community. Through their shared experience, their lives are melded together. You go through things with someone, you share that in common, it creates a bond. God's goal is not one devout person. Now, if it was his goal, oh man, things would have been a lot easier for him. Moses could have been that one devout person. And at one point, God threatens. He says, Moses, look, let's just start all over. I'll start with you. I'll make a great nation of you like I did Abraham, and we'll get rid of all these other slackers. And Moses talks him down, as it were. Of course, the whole thing is, is, uh, is somewhat contrived because God sets it up so that Moses can become an intercessor and teach us something about intercession. But in the meantime, um, God's goal is not one devout person, but a community. Stephen Porges, who I've quoted way too often, um, is a research scientist at Indiana University. He says, we have to remember that mammals are very special vertebrates. They need other mammals to regulate their bodily states and to survive. And he points out how from the time we're infants, we need others to feed and nurture us and calm us down, and that this doesn't change as we, we grow. We live in community, in, in collectives, where we all take care of each other, and that this is necessary. And that... The achievement of joy and of health, of even creativity, depends a lot on our connections with other people and how we interact. And this is what God wants. He wants this community where we all come with what we have and share it. And as we share it, others benefit from it. And as we go through things together, we bond together. And let me just say that we can excite fear and, and anxiety in each other, like the children of Israel were doing, so we all end up complaining, or we can calm each other and be more rational about things and more creative and enjoy life better by going that direction. That's the first thing, that, that God takes us individuals with our individual experience, my song, and he joins me to a choir, and we all sing songs together and to each other. 
Song is a way to interact with God and each other. Um, We have known for a while the value of music therapy in working with children and of play therapy, though some of it is is misdirected. Um, But Jake Panksepp, who has, who is a research scientist also as Porges is, emphasizes music and dance as forms of adult play therapy. He says sports can be play. <sighs> Stephen Porges says that proper play activates the parasympathetic system, you know, homeostasis, calmness, peace. And at the same time, activates but controls the sympathetic system. So in other words, there is, there's energy brought to it. There's excitement brought to it. But it's kept in control. And the way it's controlled is through social engagement. In other words, if on the basketball court, one player bumps another player and he falls down, from, you know, the other team, if the player who, who makes the bump turns and offers his hand, everything's cool. He, he diminishes or dampens the activation of the defense system, and the other player knows, okay, that wasn't intentional, or you know, we're, we're still buds. Uh, sometimes you'll see opposing teams, football teams, who've tried to maul each other to death on the field, hug afterwards, uh, and you wonder... What's, what's up with that? And the answer is that social engagement is necessary to calm, because otherwise the sympathetic system can go to war pretty quickly. All right, so Panskep says that marathons are beginning to ban iPods because they recognize the advantage that it gives to the runners who use them over those who slog along. Um, that is because of the physiological effects of music on our nervous system. He, he says, music and the other arts need to be incorporated into all therapies that are clearly concerned with the human spirit. And so Miriam dancing around with her tambourine and the other women dancing around with her tambourine, this is a, a form of play. And I'm not an advocate of dance. I think it's terrible. No one should do it. And, and it. and it has nothing to do with theology or Christianity. It's just that I can't dance. And I look like an idiot if I try. And so um, no one should. <laughs> no one should be so graceful, so, so uh, talented, so physically limber and, and strong. Anyway... Um, Something else, a pattern developed that we want to avoid. We've already talked about that, their criticism. Um, God rescued them from Egypt, for heaven's sake. He can take care of them. Does that make sense? He did the really big thing. He can take care of the daily thing. Paul said, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? 
He's done the big thing. Won't he take care of the day-to-day thing? We don't want to become stubborn. We don't... um, God has so much for us. Let's live with open minds. I know... um, I'm a, I'm in a constant change process, and I and I my goal is to become a better person, but my prayer is change my life, oh God, but don't change me. Does that make sense? I want to be the same person. I just want a better life. I want to be the same person. I just want to do more good things for others. Okay, (laughs) so here's where we're going to end today. Psalm 32. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. Would you stand, please? You're going to have a good week, okay? You're going to have a good week, not because you came here today, but because God loves you, and he has very good intentions for you. So when you feel a criticism come up, see if you can't move that towards praise, towards thankfulness. Um, May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, And lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.